We are inviting black and brown people to have a seat at the table for policy, to have a seat at the table for rebuilding. We're paying them to sit in that seat and we're also offering them real meaningful support. Those are the kinds of lasting changes that we can actually see coming out of this, but we're gonna have to agitate for them. We're gonna have to be insistent about them. And we're gonna have to keep saying, this is my value and this is my worth. This is what these tomatoes cost today and I'm not gonna move. I'm Tiffany Patton and this is Foodtopias, the podcast from Milfi Media that shares stories and strategies for reimagining our relationship to food, to the land and to each other. In this episode, we're taking a look at what it means to value Black and Indigenous lives, decenter whiteness, and carve out a supportive, joyful space at a farmer's market. This episode features Alanae Shiny Flannery, farmer and maker at Scrapberry Farm, farmer at Race Me Farm Collective, director of markets at Black Food Sovereignty Coalition, and founder and manager at Come Through Market, a BIPOC producer farmer's market in Portland, Oregon. I had the pleasure of meeting Shiny earlier this year, well, meeting Shiny virtually, when I interviewed her for a storytelling project that Real Food Media worked on with the Wallace Center. The project turned into The Power of Community-Based Food Systems, a multimedia report that shares the stories of people who are using food and agriculture to take care of their communities during times of crisis and beyond. You can find this report at www.foodsystemsleadershipnetwork.org. Shiny and her work at the Come Through Market is one of the stories featured in that report. I love this conversation so much, I had to turn it into a Foodtopias episode. And while it differs slightly from our other episodes, I'm hoping you'll enjoy it and get as much meaning out of it as I did. Shiny, if you can tell me about your local food system. What's working in it in Portland? What isn't? And where does Come Through Market fit in? You know, first, we kind of have to wrestle a little bit with the idea of what it means for a food system to work. And so what I would say is that the food system in Oregon and in the Portland metro region works exactly the way it's designed, which is to say it disenfranchises communities of color. It removes agency. It Um, bars, opportunity for communities of color. And I think that's how food systems are generally designed. And that's an idea that I really get from Leah Penniman at Soulfire Farm. What's not working about the food system from the perspective of power, from the perspective of dominant narrative, is that we do have a lot of folks trying to disrupt the designed system. I think that's really cool. And I think that we have to keep that momentum going. So in the Portland metro area where I live, we have our own flavor of the American food system, because I think by and large, there are only a few variants on the American food system that we have to play out. So we have the neoliberal foodie version. And so we have a lot of folks. And when I say folks in this case, I mean affluent white folks paying attention to that farm to table movement. We have a lot of those same folks shopping locally at some of our more upscale grocery chains. I think that that's great for them 
right? But I don't know a lot of black and brown Portlanders who are a part of the farm to table movement writ large. I don't know a lot of black and brown Portlanders that, you know, shop organic and local at the high end grocery chains. But I do think that we have a lot of folks, white affluent Portland folks, who will go around and talk about our local food system as this vibrant and healthy and nourishing thing. And it is for the people who can access it, but that's a really limited set of people. One in eight Oregonians are food insecure. That's one in five kids in the state I live in having disrupted or inconsistent access to food. That's wild. It's it's really startling, you know, to pair this idea of living in a city that has these vibrant and bustling movements around food and around local food access and and to you know pair or juxtapose that with these statistics about hunger and food insecurity in the state so you know the food system is working exactly the way that it's designed to some folks have abundance and other folks are relegated systematically to a lack of access to food that's what our food system looks like here and i think that's what our food system looks like in this country Yeah. Thank you so much for parsing out that difference between food insecurity and hunger. Can you tell me a little bit about Come Through Market? Yeah, absolutely. So Come Through is an incubator market that I founded. Time is tricky. I founded in 2019, (laughs) I think. I am a farmer in a program called Pathways to Farming that's run by a local organization called Mudbone Grown. And Pathways to Farming is a program to support beginning farmers of color. One of the things I discovered quickly in my first year of that program was that it was well and good to be learning how to produce food, or in my case, I grow herbs and make medicine. Um, But it was a very, very different thing to get into commerce, to say, I grew this thing, now where do I take it to sell it? And so first and foremost, I started Come Through Market so I would have a place to sell. And so our first year of the Come Through Market was about 10 vendors, I would say a couple of whom were from the Pathways to Farming program, and then a couple of community folks. And we only open up to BIPOC farmers and makers, so Black and Indigenous and other farmers and makers of color. And what I discovered very quickly was that we were all in the same boat of going, okay, well, I'm here, and I have a table, but I'm not sure how to set prices. And I don't necessarily know how to talk to consumers, most especially consumers who don't look like me and who don't share a cultural background with me or who don't share an economic background with me. And I found that I kept having these conversations with people. Well, you can't sell that for that. You have to charge more for that. They charge more for that at these other markets. I was going to other markets and sort of sleuthing them out and taking pictures and figuring out like how much do they charge for beets? How much do they charge for a jar of honey? And I discovered that I really loved talking to people who wanted to vend about how to get to a place where the vending was a little more sustainable, how to get to a place where I could say to um, a farmer named David, you know, I think you have to charge more for your flowers. I don't think people are saying, oh my gosh, $25 a bouquet, because they think that's too high. I think they're saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're only charging me $25 for this bouquet. And so the more I was having those conversations, the more I was realizing that there was no one else having these conversations with black and brown farmers and makers. And so I would say that the origin of the come through market is really about recognizing that access without support is not an opportunity. I had access to land 
and I could give access to other people to have a table, sell some things, but that didn't make an opportunity. Not knowing what to do, not having support in terms of what do you do when you get to the table makes that not an opportunity. I'm curious, just when you were saying about like talking to people and letting them know, like, actually, you could be charging more for this. Like your product is valued more highly. I wonder how this plays into just how also like society values black and brown lives. Like, of course, we wouldn't know how to properly like place a price on the value of our products if we are not seen as being valued ourselves. Yeah, no, I think I think that's 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 exactly the thing. You try really hard to get affluent white Portlanders to come out and spend money. And then they come and they say things. And this is this is common farmer's market practice. So for anyone who doesn't shop at a farmer's market, I'll tell you this happens at every single one of them. But when it's a black and brown farmer's market, there's a different impact of a white person looking at you and saying, okay, I know the tomatoes say $4, but could I have them for two? Mm-hmm. You know, and so yes, absolutely. At every turn, when you are working in food systems, you are continuing to ingest the message that says you don't get to set your value, you don't get to set your worth, you don't have any. And I think that that's hard baked into the whole country, so it's not surprising that we're like spooning it in. And so, you know, really, frankly, the first pass at the market, we had some successes right? Like we got 10 vendors through a season and it felt pretty good, but it started dwindling towards the end. And I started to feel really dissatisfied because although I need white Portlanders to show up with their money, you know, I tell people vote with your dollar all the time. I wanted to build a market that was for black and brown people. And that site we were at, right, which I was given for free was remote. It was accessible by a very limited run bus line. So we're not going to get black and brown Portlanders out to that actual market site. Um, So when we packed up the market for the season at the start of fall, I was really disheartened and I thought this probably isn't going to go again. I mean, I could try it next year, but I've already discovered people don't want to come out here. For me to have launched that market again, I was going to need a space, going to need liability insurance, like very large scale liability insurance. I was going to need to clear all of these regulatory hurdles. And I mean, I got to tell you that even as a like a queer black femme, I have a fair amount of privilege. You know, I got to go to college. I got to be steeped in certain kinds of systems and develop some confidence and some confluence. I am pretty good at being proximal to whiteness. Um, And I'm pretty palatable to white people. And even with all of that, the regulations that you have to sort of navigate and figure out to launch a farmer's market from scratch are huge. And I just thought, I'm never going to be able to do all that. I, I won't get the money. I don't know where I'll do that from. And you fast forward all the way to mid-June of 2020. So, you know, we've shelved the market for over six months. Jamise Quele called me from Black Food Poverty Coalition and she said, Shiny, do you still, you know, do you still have a market? Do you still want to have a market? And I said, I absolutely want to have a market. I don't know how I'm going to do that. And she basically said, if you could launch a market within two weeks, I have a space for you. I have insurance for you. And I have somebody on tap to help you figure out the regulatory hurdles. Wow. Right? Like, what a gift. What a gift. And also, you know, I just want to keep underscoring, like, what a wild amount of privilege. That doesn't happen to everybody who's got a goal. Right. Or a vision or a dream. 
So all of that came together really quickly. And we launched that first come through market at our new venue, which was close in. It has foot traffic. It's accessible by multiple bus lines. It's bikeable. It's walkable. All of those things. We launched that market in about two weeks. We had over 600 people come out. Amazing. It was amazing. And I had invited 10 vendors to that market. And in the end, I think five or six showed up. And they showed up in wildly different states of readiness. Oh my gosh. Most of them sold out of produce in an hour. Wow. We have 600 people trying to get to a market that in COVID times we're keeping very close, you know, so we don't let you all in at one time. Right. That first day I was letting 25 folks in at a time. So people stood in line a very long time and I'm grateful to them for it only to get there and realize like, wait, all of these people sold out of produce. There's nothing here. Um, and they were calling cousins, calling brothers, calling uncles, like, you got to go to my garden plot and bring me more food to sell. That's amazing. <laughs> and so it comes right back to the place I'd been a year prior of saying, oh, dang, now I did it. I gave you access, right? I gave you a table. I got a cool parking lot. We have things going on. I got somebody to pay for your insurance to be here. But I didn't support them. There wasn't support in place for them to really know, how do I do this thing? Again, I say that access without support wasn't an opportunity. And so what we've been able to build in this season is really a supportive incubator market where at every step of it, someone, whether it's me or another person that's volunteering to work on the market, is able to have these conversations about like, okay, so what does your load-in look like? Why are you an hour and a half late to get here? What is it going to take to change that? So remembering that I told you we have so many farmer's markets in Portland. What you normally get when you go to a farmer's market is you're paying. So you're paying fees, you're paying an application fee. Then if you get accepted to a market, you're going to pay vendor fees. And those vendor fees could be anywhere from $40 to $100 per market. You're going to have to get liability insurance and standard liability insurance for someone to sell at a farmer's market is a $1 million or $2 million policy. And I think that you can maybe imagine for so many of the folks that we want to work with for black and brown Portlanders, the idea that you would ever fix your mouth to say the words $1 million to somebody out loud self-referentially is wild. Like it's overwhelming. It's terrifying. Like, what do you mean I got to call somebody and say $1 million is what I need? And that's just standard for getting into a farmer's market. And it's easy to just look at black and brown farmers and makers and say, but there's five days a week of markets, six days a week of markets. Why don't you just go there? But the access without the support is not an opportunity. So at Come Through Market, Black Food Sovereignty Coalition pays for my vendors to be insured for at least their first two markets. We have a variety of loaner equipment for folks who don't have any. So once they sort of ascertain like, hey, this does work for me. I can do this. I'm making this go. Oh, wait, I need my own stuff. I'm out there like hitting people up, you know, hey, I need a tent to give to somebody forever. Like, get us one. So we're able to give them the infrastructure that's required to check it out. And there aren't a lot of places that I'm aware of in this particular context where you can do that, where you can 
figure out, does this pathway work for me without having invested $1,000 up front? So at the Come Through Market, we have very, very few rules for our consumers. So for the customers who wait out there in line, and we've got that line down to about 20 minutes now, and we got DJs and there's free food and you get to party with your little COVID pod while you're waiting to get into the market, 100 folks at a time. But we do not allow haggling at the market. That is the most important rule because there are so few spaces where Black people in particular and Indigenous people in particular get to say, this is my value and I will not be moved. So today, these beats cost $5. That is what we are worth and we won't budge. And I think it is so important to have that space that you get to enter. Um, And I think it's so important to teach, to train folks who live in the dominant power perspective to learn how to show up in a space and not craft it into being about you. It is an edifying experience. And I really do think that Come Through Market is an experience. It's a place where you buy stuff, but it's also an experience. And it's the experience of being either centered when you are so rarely centered in this country, unless it's in a deficit model. You know, black and brown people are only ever centered here when we are talking about statistics that folks have shaped in a particular way about black and brown communities. We're only ever centered in a narrative about oppression. We're only centered in narratives about how our communities are deficient and lacking in some way. So to center black and brownness as a celebration and to decenter whiteness and to decenter the power of white money, even while inviting it to come flow in commerce through a marketplace, I think is really, really important. I don't see that as something that's core to the mission of most farmers markets in Portland, even though we have all those days a week of farmers markets. That's not something I see them doing. The narrative that they're crafting out there says, hey, farmers markets can replace your grocery store. You know, come here and get everything you need. And that's great. That works for them. That's not the narrative of the come through market. You know, the come through market says, come for the experience and also leave with some kale and a mug. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Love that. (laughs) This is making me think of these other conversations I've had with people for the storytelling project and the, the conversations I've had with Black and Indigenous people every single person has mentioned the space as a place of safety. Mm -hmm. And you don't really hear that when you're talking with white folks because, you know, all spaces are safe for them. Right. But I was wondering if you could just kind of position the context of why that safety is so important and so necessary. Mm. Interesting. Well, one, I'm glad to hear that folks are finding it to be safe. I would say, you know, first and foremost, that is... Oof, that's going to be tough to say, but that's an illusion, right? There's no safety. There is no safety anywhere. And so I want to try to unpack a little what I suspect we're saying when we say it feels safe. I would say that it's a working space. And and the reason I want to like differentiate these things is because I find the way that the idea of safe space gets used in the dominant power narrative to be really, really troubling. And when we talk amongst whiteness about safe spaces, which is, you know, really popular language in educational spaces, community spaces, you know, to say like, this is a safe space. You might walk into a community center and see that on the wall with a couple of ground rules, right? 
And what it does is it gives people this really false notion that like you only have to work at being safe inside there. But then once you leave, you can you can say all your dirt and garbage in the hallway. Working space allows us to say, I'm not perfect. I'm probably going to show up wrong on some days or show up a little off or show up in a way that isn't bringing the most or the best or the most productive thing. And that I'm trusting that y'all can meet me with some form of grace there. Or I'm trusting that you can meet me with some sort of support that will help me reshape in the way that I want to, whatever's happening in my day or my life or what have you. I want to say that I think Come Through Market is a working space. And that when you enter a working space that has some really clear boundaries and delineations, that will allow you to feel some safety, right? So I don't know if that makes sense as a distinction, but I think it's a space in which people can feel some safety. And that's different than saying it's a safe space. Because I don't think that you can be entirely safe in a space that is Portland. I don't think you can be a Black or an Indigenous person in Portland and be fully safe. And so there's this, you know, like protective mom bear part of me that's like, ooh, ooh, don't say that, y'all. Because like, I I don't want people to relax too much, right? And that feels really challenging because I want, I want Black and Indigenous people to relax. We need to breathe, Lord, we need to breathe. Um, But I do think at the come through market that Black and brown farmers and makers are invited to show up authentically and not the kind of authentic that has to be palatable to whiteness, but just show up as yourself. If they want your stuff, they're going to stand in line and buy it. And if they want, because I say this all the time, white folks want a cookie all the time. They stay wanting a cookie. Like I did a good thing. Um, And if they want the cookie badly enough, then they will go through the experience of being decentered. We're talking about support, various services that are or are not available to black and brown people. And just now thinking about abolishing the police and using those funds to actually support communities. I'm wondering if you could like tell me what is your take on the role of abolition? What role does abolition play in food justice and food sovereignty? I was thinking a lot about Frederick Douglass and Frederick Douglass having told us for all of these generations about the role that food has always played. Food has been a weapon of control since Black people were enslaved and brought here. We cannot talk about abolition without talking about food in some way. We can't talk about food justice and food sovereignty without talking about abolition because dismantling systems, you know, if I keep telling you the systems are working the way they're designed, then there has to be some dismantling. I think that defunding, defunding militaristic police is certainly a starting place there, but I don't know how do we build the conduit that gets that money actually to a place where it needs to be. What I do know for a fact is that Oregon was hit really hard by the recession. We have these persistent inequities around food systems in the state of Oregon. And the state of Oregon and all of its people 
don't really provide economic opportunities to communities of color. And so if we don't have economic opportunity, then we're really never addressing food insecurity in communities of color. We're talking about food systems and food insecurity. And I think somewhere in the middle there, the place where we start to balance it out really has to be about uplifting work that is really cementing in economic opportunities for communities of color. It's one thing to just say, cool, let's give everybody a food box for 10 weeks. But that isn't the same thing as saying, hey, let's support everybody in actualizing themselves in some way, actualizing their dreams and visions, helping them believe that they can have a dream and a vision and shaping that. And I think that, you know, the standard of success has to involve Black and brown people actualizing their dreams of producing whatever it is that they want to give back to the world. Like, I think that actually has to be a huge part in between the abolishing these dreadful systems of oppression and enslavement and control and the uplifting and feeding and nourishing of communities of color, like that has to come from within us. And to do that, we have to be supporting producers of color, farmers of color, makers of color, what food systems in the way that they've been designed and currently operate do is make everything opaque. We obfuscate everything that's needed to be successful. So a big part of abolishing all of these structures, you know, all of the painful pieces of capitalism, all of the deadly pieces of militaristic police forces, which is all of the police forces, is that we don't really understand how those systems work. And so what I really hope to do as we're rerouting these eventual funds and resources is to put a lot into building a scaffold through the food system for producers and makers, for people to be having economic opportunity and to say to them, you know, these are all the parts of the scaffold where you get to show up as you and people will meet you where you are. Here are the parts of the scaffold where you have to start showing up where the expectation is and meeting it. And I think that's a big part of getting to that, like, healthy regional food economy. I don't envision a future where we just don't have systems, but I do have, you know, envision a future where black and brown people are choosing, opting into building these systems, not being tokenized into building the systems, not being enslaved into building the systems, not having systems just built on their backs, but are really choosing and opting into doing that. And I think that's what food sovereignty is about. It's about saying that people get to choose what they eat, where it comes from and how it was grown. It is fundamentally about a right to choose. And what black and indigenous people in particular on this land have been stripped of over and over and over again is the right to choose anything. We are inviting black and brown people to have a seat at the table for policy, to have a seat at the table for rebuilding. We're paying them to sit in that seat and we're also offering them real meaningful support. Those are the kinds of lasting changes that we can actually see coming out of this, but we're gonna have to agitate for them. We're gonna have to be insistent about them. And we're gonna have to keep saying, this is my value and this is my worth. This is what these tomatoes cost today and I'm not going to move. 
Thanks for joining us for this first season of Foodtopias, Growing Food, Cultivating Utopia. Foodtopias is produced by Real Food Media in partnership with our allies in the food movement. I'm Tiffany Patton, and this episode was recorded from my home on Ohlone land in Oakland, California. Thanks to our sound editor, Asala Sanapur, and to Will Maggot for the music, titled Set Me Free. Deep, heartfelt appreciation goes to the Wallace Center, who made this episode possible. The Wallace Center is a convener of ideas, people, and solutions that are working to strengthen communities through resilient farming and food systems across the U.S. Curious about how they work? Check out www.wallacecenter.org. And if you want more stories like the one you just heard, make sure to read the full report, The Power of Community-Based Food Systems. You can find it at www.foodsystemsleadershipnetwork.org. Again, thank you for joining us for the pilot season of Foodtopias. We can't wait to come back with more next year. In the meantime, check us out at www.realfoodmedia.org to get connected to any of the people or resources mentioned in this episode.